pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for the deep feelings that are captured within Psalm 51. And we rejoice that you have given us this beautiful psalm that captures the spirit of a man who's broken and grieving over his sin. And we pray today that you would help us to hear this psalm as if it is a word from heaven to earth about what real repentance looks like. I pray for some who today, in the next few moments, are going to feel the weight of your conviction, and I pray that they would respond with joy and rapid obedience. I pray for others who know this path of repentance well, and that they would rejoice at how you have worked in their life in the past and longingly look for you to do deeper and greater things in their future. So God, we are asking you now to come and to meet with us. I pray that every word that I say would fit with your heart for your people gathered on this Lord's Day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go over to Psalm 51, which is our text today. And we come at the end of a ten-week journey through the book of Psalms. And what we have seen through these ten different Psalms is the way that the Bible speaks in this great book to every season of our life. I don't know about you, but it certainly has been helpful for me to see that the Bible echoes what is going on inside of our hearts, and then even more, it gives us specific direction as to how we should think and live in light of the varied emotions that are going to come our direction in life. Now next week, we're turning the corner, we're going to talk about the subject of the tongue in a four-week sermon series called... Well, be careful, little mouth. And um, so that's going to begin next week. It'll be part of our Live 11. But today we're going to wrap up this, this great time that we've had together in God's Word. I want to remind you where we've been. We began the first week looking at Psalm 1 that identified for us two paths, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And then we saw from Psalm 8 the incredible mercy of God and the majesty of God. Remember he said, what is man that you are mindful of him? And then we saw in uh, Psalm 9 that praise in the past, praise for the past rather, results in trust in the crucible. Just look back on your life, see how God has worked, and that provides trust when you're under the gun. Uh, Next we saw in Psalm 34 to taste and see that indeed the Lord is good and the fullness of what it meant to really trust Him and see Him for all that He is. Then in Psalm 78, uh, Nate walked us through how to look at God's memorials and really embrace what it means to trust and obey God because of what He's done in the past. Joe Bartimus led us through what it means for Jesus to be a sufficient Savior from that very familiar and loved psalm, Psalm 23. Then we saw Psalm 83, this, this growing... A challenge with moments when God is silent and he doesn't speak clearly. And what do you do during those seasons? And then Psalm 12, we saw the, the, the nature of untamable grief. And how do you think biblically when grief comes across your path? And then finally last week we looked at Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? This, this notion of being stuck in this tension between pain beyond belief and divine providence beyond our comprehension. 
it's been quite a journey and one that I have found personally helpful. And it reminded me just again why we love the Psalms so much. I mean, I, I love the Psalms, but when you go this deep into them, it just reminds you why you love them. And I hope that one of your takeaways will be um, this thought. We have the Psalms, friends, because God wants us to know that he loves us and cares for us. I mean, he's put in inspired scripture things that reflect an echo of what's going on in your soul and pain. And then the second thing is, it just, it just is remarkable to me to be reminded again that, you know, the Bible really is relevant for where we live. And I know that we know this, but when you go through the Psalms, you really just feel it at a whole new level, that the Bible really speaks to the varied emotions and scenarios in life that we deal with. There really is a song for every season. Now, I left Psalm 51 as the last sermon on purpose because I think it's one of the most important psalms in the Bible. It is, like none other, a heart cry for God's mercy in what was surely David's darkest moment of his life. Its theme, Psalm 51's theme, is as common as the other psalms that we've addressed But in particular, Psalm 51 is a psalm for when you blow it, when you fail, and when you have sinned. It's a psalm about repentance. And what is real repentance? What does real repentance look like? So, in order to understand the message of the psalm, you have to know what prompted its writing. So, if you look at your copy of God's Word, your translation probably like mine, has the number 51, and then has some sort of uh, edited title like Create in Me a Clean Heart. That's what's in my translation. And then we see that before verse 1, there's this introductory statement, and it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Now that's a very short summary of a really disturbing story recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Many of you are familiar with this story, but it really needs to be reviewed so it sets the context. So let me give you a brief overview. So in the middle of David's life and his reign, he became marvelously successful. Jerusalem as a city was well fortified. The army was well trained. More battles were won than were lost. And the nation was, uh, for the most part, at peace. In other words, after a long journey for David, from running, from hiding, from struggling, after a long journey, he has finally made it. He's reached the top of his game. And yet it was from this summit that David, like so many, fell. 2 Samuel 11 tells us that for some reason, when the kings go off to war in the spring, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. He let his troops go out and fight the battles, and he stayed behind. Some suggest he began to develop a bit of an entitlement mentality. Maybe he thought, hey, I've, I've fought enough battles, I've been out there enough, let my troops go, I've got good men, they can handle it. Others think he became a bit apathetic. We're not sure. It may be like a statement that a friend of mine says, that it's hard to remain common when you walk with kings. It may have been that David's success got into his heart and into his soul. 
Regardless, as he remained in Jerusalem, he walked out on the terrace of his palace, which was likely the highest point in the city of Jerusalem. And as he was walking along his terrace, he happened to notice a woman on her roof bathing. Rather than turning away from this accidental encounter, David allowed his lustful curiosity to linger, and then he acted on it, asking who the woman was. His servants replied with a subtle warning. They said, she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And, and despite what David knew what was right, in spite of what he know that, knew that he should have done, in spite of the subtle warning from the servants, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David requested her presence at the palace and they committed adultery. She went back to her home. He went to his palace. And David thought he got away with it. Sometime later, Bathsheba sent the startling word to David that she was pregnant with his child. And now David had a huge problem that required a cover-up. After all, I'm sure in his mind he thought the, the nation, in the midst of all of its peace, can't handle a scandal of the king being adulterous and taking the, the, the wife of a known significant warrior in our city. Maybe he feared Uriah the Hittite, who no doubt was a significant soldier. Who knows what was going on in his head. But what David had determined was that this could not be left the way that it was. And so he developed a plan. He called Uriah back from battle, hoping that giving this leave of absence from battle would result in Uriah going home, sleeping with his wife, and thereby thinking that the child was in fact his. So, so David colludes in order to convince Uriah that the child within his wife's womb belongs to himself. However, much to David's dismay, Uriah refuses to go home. He instead chooses to sleep with the servants in their quarters. So David, therefore, invited him to a party the next night and threw food and wine at him. And Uriah became drunk. And yet he still refused to go home. Notice that, that a drunk Uriah has more character than a sober David in this moment. So since plan A had failed, David needed to act more decisively and develops a plan to marry Bathsheba after he kills her husband. He sends word that Uriah is to be set out into the battle, and in the moment of the heat of the battle, they are to retreat from him, leaving him by the city walls, and the effect would be that he would be killed in battle, and the plan worked marvelously. Uriah died, Bathsheba mourned her husband's death, and then David took her as his wife, and no one was the wiser about the child within her womb at the funeral and that it was David's and David thought he had gotten away with it except for one problem God who saw it all God saw the whole thing and so he sends word to a prophet Nathan Poor guy probably was minding his own business when God comes and says, Nathan, I have a job for you to do. You have to confront David about his sin. And Nathan, no doubt, says, the, the, the David, David. 
So David had to be deli- or, or Nathan had to be delicate and yet direct. And so he confronted David by means of a story about an injustice that was done to a poor man by a rich man. He tells the story of a rich man who had lots of goods, lots of resources, and when he had some neighbors who came, or, or some people from out of town who came to visit, he, he went to his neighbor, a poor man, and rather than taking um, product, produce, and sheep from his own fields, he robbed the poor man of his one little sheep, the sheep that was a part of its family, a, a sheep that was very precious to them. He slaughtered that sheep and gave that to his visiting guests. David, when he heard this story, was outraged, and he swore to Nathan that the man who did this must die. And then, in a moment that I hope to someday be able to see in the instant replay booth in heaven, Nathan said to David, You're the man. You. Are the man. And in that moment, David went from you to man to you're the man. He had surely not gotten away with it. David was broken over his sin lamented over the exposure of his wicked heart. He acknowledged this to Nathan and then accepted the consequences of his actions. This, friends, is the context of Psalm 51. David is guilty of pride, of lust, of adultery, of deceit, of murder, The crimes and cover-up that he's involved in are despicable and the consequences were severe. And in this dark hour of his life, he pours out his heart to God. And what we have in Psalm 51 here is a very helpful description of what is going on inside of the soul of a man who has been exposed for who he really is. So therefore, what this psalm gives us is it shows us what repentance really looks like. And in so doing, it helps us not only to be able to to, to see what biblical, godly repentance is, but it also helps us to see the effects of real repentance. This psalm is important, friends, because all of us are sinners. There's not a single person in this room who's been guilty of something horrible. We've all grievously violated God's law and his heart. And this psalm is for major blowout moments, but it's also for repentance over any sin issue. So there's four elements involved in this psalm that I want to show you today. Four characteristics, if you will, of biblical and godly repentance. Here's the first one. It involves brokenness, that you see your sin for what it really is. Psalm 51 begins with the single request, Have mercy on me, O God. That word mercy means to bend or to stoop to an inferior. It implies that the one who is requesting the mercy doesn't deserve it. In other words, you don't request mercy from someone who is subservient to you. No, you request mercy because you are subservient. Mercy is requested by a person who knows that what they're asking for, they don't deserve. And David is requesting from God that he stoop or bend to him. Why? Because David has come to an end of himself. He's broken. 
His sin has cost him dearly, and he knows now what he needs more than anything else is God. He needs mercy. He needs help. He needs for God to come and help him. And and notice that this mercy then is linked to two other concepts. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So his appeal for mercy is based not on his own worth or even his own actions, but rather his appeal for mercy is based upon God's steadfast love and the abundance of his mercy. This this, this steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed. It means covenant love. It refers to God's faithfulness in the midst of our faithlessness. It refers to God's unbelievable grace to people who keep rebelling against Him. And it's used all over the Old Testament. 240 times, in fact. And it's loaded in the Psalms all over the place. Chesed is God's faithfulness, His graciousness, His compassion, His, his long-suffering, his, his heart and His love for His people. Hesed is the basis of God's relationship with his people, meaning that he loves his people despite their lack of love for him. He is faithful to them despite their unfaithfulness to him. And so therefore David appeals for mercy not based upon his own worth, but solely on the steadfast love, on the faithfulness of God. What's happened here is that sin has destroyed so many things and David returns to the basics. He knows that his real problem is himself. And what he needs is the mercy of God. His brokenness causes him then to see the greatness of his need. What does he need? He needs forgiveness and he needs it in enormously large doses. He uses three words to describe what he wants to have happen and three words to describe his sin. First he says, blot out, meaning wipe away, wipe the filth away. He says, wash me thoroughly, uh, which means a deep cleansing. Clean me out from the inside. And then he says, cleanse me, which means a washing for the purpose of spiritual cleanliness. As well, he uses three different words to describe his transgression, his iniquity, and his sin. All three words. So he uses three words to describe the nature of his sin. Transgression, iniquity, sin. He uses three words to describe what he needs. Blot it out. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me. What's going on here? What's happening is that David sees the scope and the depth of his sin. He sees the enormity of what he has done. He is, in a word, broken. I cannot overemphasize to you the importance of this element of repentance called brokenness. Listen, without brokenness, there is no repentance. You can feel bad about the consequences. You can feel bad about what happened. You can feel sorry for the mess that you've made. You can look around and see all the the relational body bags that are happening. And you can look at your life and go, oh, I can't believe this is so awful. But it's not repentance. Repentance is you see your sin for what it is. You, you see it. It is plain in front of you. Oh, there's consequences. But the difference is, is that your mind and heart have been awakened to the reality of what's going on. Listen, sin has a deluding, deceiving, and deadening effect. It causes you to think that you have every right to do the things that you're doing, even though you're destroying your life. 
Even though you're destroying the people that you claim to love the most, sin deludes you by telling you, you deserve this, you've earned this, you need this, you can't live without this. And it causes you to do things that a reasonable, sensible person would never do. You live in sinful insanity by virtue of tearing down the things around you. And what happens when brokenness comes is your eyes are very aware of what it is that you are doing. It, 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 God shocks you into seeing your sin. And suddenly you realize it's not only the consequences. It's not only what I'm doing. It's the reality of what I'm doing in terms of my relationship with God. Listen to me. It is a great mercy when God shocks you out of your self-deception. My prayer for some of you today is that God would do that this very hour. That in the midst of all of the self-justification of I deserve this, I need this, I've earned this. If it wasn't for this situation, this circumstance, or this, you find all sorts of reasons to justify why you're doing it. And the fact of the matter is, is you're self-deceived. And when God opens your eyes, it's a mercy that he shows you. No, here is your sin. And when you see it, you are broken over who you are. The effect is that you see the consequences and you see what your real need is and it becomes crystal, crystal clear. In brokenness, what happens is the fog of your self-deception lifts and you are so horrified with what you see that you cry out, have mercy on me, oh God. Why? Because you've finally seen your sin for what it really is. And God in his mercy shows you what it is like. This is what happened to David and oh how I pray that it will happen to some of you today. Because the first step in getting free is for you to see the reality of what your sin really is. It's brokenness. Here's the second thing. This notion of confession acknowledging the depth of your sin. Notice how David speaks with directness and candor. Verse 3, he says, For I know my transgression. That word means intimate, personal knowledge. I know my transgressions, meaning that he admits what he has done and he agrees with God. I know my transgression. Verse 3 again, and my sin is ever before me. He sees the depth of what he has done. He looks around and and he wakes up and there it is in front of him. He goes to bed and there it is. He sees all the consequences, the effects. His sin is right there in front of him. I know my transgression. I see it for what it is. Verse 4, he sees his sin in light of who God is. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now surely David knows, and we all know, that he has sinned against Bathsheba and against Uriah and many others. The point isn't that he hasn't sinned against all these others. The point is, in reference to all of these, he sees now that the greatest thing he's done is sin against God. He sees that the greatest offended party in all of this is a holy God. And in that seeing it and in the awakening of it, it is the mercy of God that has broken him. He is now able to acknowledge the depth of it. Verse 5, David knows that his sin is not just what he has done. The problem is fundamentally who he is. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Meaning... 
Everything that David did was a reflection of a real part of his soul, something he longed to keep hidden, longed to keep um, from being exposed. Now it's out there and others could see who he really is. And David and you and I know that the real problem is not the things that we do. The problem is fundamentally who we are, that his lying, his lust, his deceit, his manipulation, his murder, all those things came from somewhere and they came from within him. And David realizes the problem is not just what I've done. The problem is every element of me is compromised by this wickedness. And then he sees how far he strayed from what God desires in verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He knows that God wants truth in the inward parts and he longs for God to teach him what that looks like again and he knows that there's no truth in him anymore. And so he's aghast at the depth and the breadth of his sin. He not only sees it for what it is, but he acknowledges the reality of what that sin is, both in himself personally, in the fabric of his being, and the things that he has done. Now in the New Testament, the word confess is a Greek word. It's the word homo lageo. It means Homo meaning same and legeo word. So what does confess mean? What does it mean to acknowledge the depth of your sin? It means that you say the same thing about your sin that God would say. In other words, you agree with God about your sin. True brokenness results in confession where you acknowledge and come to agree with God about what your sin really is. So you see it for what it is and you realize that there are no excuses, no justifications, no rationalizations. You're done trying to blame everyone, including your past, your parents, your situation, your circumstances. You're done blaming all those things. And for once in your life, you finally say, you know what? The problem is not all of this. The problem is me. It's my heart. No more excuses. I agree with God. I got a problem. And I'm out of fellowship with you. The meaning is more than just naming sin. Like, I committed adultery. And and great. So you name the sin. Don't call it an affair. Call it what it is. An adultery But it means that you see your sin even beyond just the name. You see it for what it really is. True confession means that as a person, you are overwhelmed with the depth of your sin, especially as it relates to your relationship with God. And in confession, sin is recognized more than a mistake, more than a lapse of judgment, more than a bad decision. Sin is seen as treason against a holy God. And you see it that way. And if God in His Spirit helps you to see it today that way, it is a gift from Him. Do not resist or resent that. So, repentance first is brokenness. It is second, confession. Third, it is renewal. This is where David longs for God to do what only God can do. And let me just note, this that you can't be renewed unless brokenness and confession are embraced so many people who want the renewal but they don't want the confession so many people who want the renewal but they don't want the brokenness they they want all the circumstances to change and, and and the reason why they want the renewal is because they don't like the pressure of the consequences of their sin and some people even come to church or come to jesus or come to counseling because they want their marriage to be fixed they want the pressure to be off and the fact of the matter is they don't want real renewal they just want the circumstances to change they want the consequences to end that's not real repentance that's using god as a lackey this renewal this repentance 
Longing for God to do what only God can do is conditional on brokenness and confession. First John 1 9. If we confess our sins. So God loves you unconditionally, but renewal only takes place conditionally. David lists the things that he longs to have happen. Verse 7, he longs for cleansing from his sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. This is in reference to in the Old Testament when you came in contact with a dead body, you then went to a priest and they would purge you with hyssop. So David's deadness in his own sinful actions require him for this longing to be cleaned from the inside out, this, this purging Verse 8, he longs for joy to return. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. There's two things here. One, he longs for internal joy. Let the bones inside of me that you have broken, let these now rejoice because he's thrilled with the new joy that God has given him. But as well, let me hear joy and gladness. What this means is that David has been removed from the joy and gladness of the community. Probably worship, probably also his family. I mean, nothing like a a horrible sin like this to affect every family celebration for a long time. And David longs for the time when joy and gladness can come back into the home. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, is that your sin is ever before you every time you involve yourself in a family celebration because the joy and gladness are gone because a third person or a third situation, your sin has entered into your home. That gathering, or even this assembly... He longs for God to permanently wipe away his sin. Verse 9, he says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He longs for God to remove completely his sin. He wants a restoration of his relationship with God. Verse 10, he needs inward change. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. He, He wants God to do something in him that he knows he can't do. So he's pleading with God, create within me a clean heart. David knows that the problem is not just the actions, it is his heart. And he knows he cannot change fundamentally his heart. And so he cries out to God, create within me a new me, a new heart. And when he talks about renew a right spirit, he's pleading for new motivations. So the frightening reality of sin is it shows you what you're capable of and it shows you what your motivations are capable of. And David is afraid of his own soul and he cries out to God and says, will you give me a new heart and make me have new motives? Some of you need to pray, God, give me a new longing, a new desire, a new, a new love in my life for you. He asks for God's preserving help. Verse 11 Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. David says, God help me. Don't don't treat me like you treated Saul. Who in the hardness of his heart and in his disobedience, God removed his spirit. David had seen that. David had seen what happens when you go far enough and God says no more. And he lets you run the full gamut of your self-centered life. And don't just think this happens in the Old Testament. This happens in the New. It's called the hardening of the heart. Where because of sin's deceitfulness, your heart becomes so hardened that you don't even hear the word. Someone could preach or teach or plead with you till they're blue in the face. And the fact of the matter is it goes in one ear and out. What's happening? Because your heart is hard. And you may have deluded yourself thinking five, ten years from now, then I'll repent. And you make the mistake of thinking that God's grace will be more evident to you then than it is now. The hardening of the heart is where God pulls away by his spirit and says, so you want to try and run your own life, go and good luck with that. Therefore, if you feel any ounce of conviction about anything today, it is a gift from God. 
And then finally, he needs these new desires, verse 12, that fit with salvation. Verse 12 says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David wants more than just happiness here. He's asking for a whole new way of looking at life. He wants to live through a lens of God's grace. So what is he asking for? He's asking for God to transform him from this rebellious traitor that he is to an enthusiastic follower. Over the years, friends, I have counseled many people who were really sorry for what they did. They were really, they really regretted the consequences and they said that they really wanted to change. And unfortunately, not everybody did change. I don't know if it's wisdom or a little bit of cynicism. I hope more wisdom than being cynical, but when I counsel, I can give someone the word of God, and there's this thing within my heart that I believe this word of God works. But when I look at someone across the desk or the couch, I often think this thought, only about half of the people ever really do anything with this. Oh, they come, and they really want, they, they, they really want information, they really want the word, but the reality is, is, often it's just a smoke screen for something else that they really desire. You know, the people who really do change, they're marked by renewal. I mean, total renewal. It's not just that one part of them changes. It's that everything radically changes. Like a new man has taken over. I've heard spouses say, my, my, my wife, is just she's the same body, but it's just a different person. There's a different motive, a different love, a different spirit there. And what happens in renewal is the person inside radically changes. So now they see everything in life different because the renewal is total. Their whole perspective on life has been radically changed. It's a miracle. They totally are transformed in terms of how they see life it it even affects how you see coat hangers coat hangers i once had a counselee who had broken his marriage vows multiple times and he said he was sorry he tried to change but it never lasted and and then finally finally he broke and you know how we knew He began seeing his self-centeredness through every area of his life. And his wife called me and she, with weeping words, said, It's unbelievable, Mark. My husband was standing there looking in our closet. And he realized that he had taken all of the nice hangers. They were all on his side of the closet. And as he stood there, he fell into the conviction about his self-centeredness and how it affected even how he hung up his clothes. And he wrote his wife a letter of apology asking her forgiveness, saying, Honey... I can't believe it, but my self-centeredness even affects how I handle coat hangers. Will you please forgive me? That's what happens in renewal. It is that the pervading glory of the renewal of Jesus Christ affects every arena of life. Renewal does that. It changes everything. It means that God takes a person and he literally makes them new. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, 
A man has to be born again. Some of you, the problem is not just the things that you do. Listen to me. The problem is that the things that you do surface a much larger issue, which is that you have never given your heart and life in allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore, the things that you are doing, you can't help but do. And so you feel bad about the consequences. You want the consequences to stop. You feel terrible about people that are hurt and affected, but you keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over. Why? Because you're a walking dead man. That's why. You have no power within you because you've never surrendered the first thing that needs to be surrendered, which is your life. You've never been broken over the essence of who you are and coming to face to face with the risen Christ and saying, I need you to take over my life. You have not come to the point that you are done with you. And until you come to the point that you are done with you, you will never change. Oh, you'll clean up for a little while, but there will not be fundamental change. Why? Because you are a walking corpse. It may be that your individual sin today surfaces the bigger need, which is for you to turn not just from one sin, but for you to turn from the trajectory of your life. See, receiving Jesus means that you not only run to him for what he can do once, but you run to him for what he's willing to do all the time, which is perpetually renew you. And then here's the final thing, this notion of restoration. Here's the final element where God not only breaks you, helps you to agree with him and renews you, but he gives you a new life. Here's the amazing hope. The sin and the shame of the past is gone and God makes you new. There's nothing greater than this. But, but let me give you a word of caution. Because I've seen this so often that there are way too many people who want to move so quickly to restoration. They want to move quickly through brokenness, confession, renewal. They want to get to restoration. In fact, I've seen people who only two weeks after confessing sin think that God has given them a new ministry to counsel the very people who they used to sin with. As if somehow three weeks of repentance has made them an expert on how, how that could change their lives. And I would tell you, a sign that true repentance has come is that when someone says, hey, can you help me clean up my life, that your answer is, you know what, I'm not even qualified yet to deal with that issue because God's still doing a really deep work in me. Restoration takes time. Verse 13, he longs for the day when his life will be the means of advancing God's kingdom. He longs for this day. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Verse 14, he longs for the freedom from shame and from what he has done. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. He longs for the shame of the past to be gone. Verse 15, he longs for the ability to worship freely again. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. He longs for the day that he can come into the assembly and praise God and worship with his lips because he's free. Verse 16, for you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering probably because David had sacrificed between the time when he committed his sin and when he had acknowledged it to Nathan, and he knows that sacrifices given like this are not pleasing to God, but instead he knows now what God really wants. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David knows that worship cannot be a fraud. And then the psalm ends with two additional verses that were likely added Later, in the context of a broader community, when people, for instance, coming back out of exile began to repent over their sin issues, 
they used Psalm 51 as a model and then added things like, do good to Zion in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. In other words, God, make us a group of people who collectively are repenting all the time together. And, and then he goes on and says, then you will delight in the right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. He longs for the time when brokenness and renewal, confession and restoration will be part of the entire community. So brokenness, confession, renewal, restoration, these are the elements of what true repentance is. This is when God is able to wake you up to the reality of who you are and your sin. He's able to show you the full depth of what your sin is all about. He's able to show you the hope that is found in Him. And He's able to give you a new life. He can change you from the inside out. So here's my question. How long has it been since you've sung this song? How long has it been since you've really seen the treason of the things that you do? How long has it been since you felt the weight of being out of fellowship with God? How how long has it been since God has put something on your heart that you know really needs to be confessed? How long has it been since He's broken you over some hidden sin or something that you think you're getting away with? How long has it been since you have heard the Word of God to you? You are not going to get away with this. How long has it been since you've acknowledged your desperate need of Him? How long has it been since you've marveled at the forgiveness available to you in Jesus? How long has it been since you have sung this song? Because let's be honest, we're not that righteous. This should be a song that we sing much more often than what we do. Today, how we're going to end our service is by singing. And as we sing about the precious blood of Jesus, what can wash away my sin, I'm going to extend an invitation to you. You may be here, and the best thing in all the world for you to do today would be to act on this psalm and to really sing this song. And so, as we sing, I'm going to invite you to do something rather risky, and that is that I would like to make this area up here a place for people who feel the weight of Psalm 51 and the need to say to God, I'm broken, I agree with you, I need renewal, to come and kneel and sing To make this a place, an altar, if you will, for you to be able to deal a death blow to the pride that is within your soul that says, I don't, I don't need that. Well, if you think you don't need that, then you need that. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing and we're going to have some of our uh, counseling staff, some of our elders. They're up here at the front. They're available to pray with you. Same thing in worship too. There'll be elders and and, and counseling staff up there at the front. As we sing, I'm just going to invite you that if, if you feel God's convicting power, I want you to come and I want you to kneel and just say, God, here I am. Have mercy on me, oh God. But there's some of you in particular who you need more than that. What you need to do is in the face of our elders or the face of one of our lay counselors, you need to come today and not just kneel. Brother or sister, you need to come and name your sin. You need to come and let it go out of your mouth. And you need to tell them, I have sinned this way. And break the bondage of secret sin and sever the root of hidden and, and, and harbored ungodliness and stake a claim in the ground that on this day I will not let this sin rule me. I will name you and I will tell them my sin is this.
And in that brokenness comes freedom. And in that freedom comes healing. And in that healing comes joy. And this could be the first day of the rest of your life if you just sing that song. And so, Father, help us now to respond in a way that fits your heart. Help us to be broken. Help us to be repentant. Help us to be real on this day. You see it all. So grant us mercy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.